0: wearing a sweater that was selected for you by the people in this room from a pile of stuff give me a full ballerina skirt and a hint of saloon and i'm on board Mm. I can't go back. Welcome to the She Became Visible podcast. I'm your host, Renee Steelman. This podcast is my story. It's your story. It's our story. It's all the stories of all the women who one day knew that it was time to remember who they were, who they are, and stand up and be seen. Good afternoon. Welcome to She Became Visible. I'm your host, Renee Steelman, and I have a lot of information to throw out to you today. So um, I hope you're comfortable in your car, driving your kids back and forth to school, because I know school has started in a lot of areas of the United States of America. Um, and so if you're locked in your car, that's my favorite place for you to be. And I hope that you are, uh, you have downloaded the She Became Visible Uh, podcast and that you're listening to it now. So I'm just going to be reflecting a little bit on what the She Became Visible podcast is all about and telling you a little bit more about the content and where it's going to be going in the future. So let me start out by saying that um, I am absolutely, as happy as a pig in mud to be being able to have a podcast. And I want to give a lot of shout outs. I'm going to start out by giving a lot of shout outs. First of all, I record my podcast at a location in Scottsdale, Arizona called Pod Populi. The reason I do that is because I'm a very busy person and I do not want to rely on my own technology skills to present a podcast. Therefore, I like to go to professionals. I use that same principle in a lot of areas of my life. I don't paint. I don't refurbish my furniture. I don't hang my own wallpaper. These are all things I actually used to do when I was in my 20s and 30s. But as I've grown, I have learned to appreciate those that have expertise in those areas. And I think it was Harry Truman that said something like, um, do what you do best and hire the rest. I don't think it was Harry Truman, but whoever said it, I believe that and that's my policy. So, I record my podcast at Pod Populi. There are professionals that edit it and um and uh, help me to get it posted properly, so that's one shout out. The other shout out, I want to remind all of you that my podcast, she became visible falls under the umbrella of Mormon discussions. And Bill Reels um, Corporation, which is a nonprofit. And if any of you are familiar with Bill, he has quite a few podcasts under his umbrella that are very, very successful and very informative. Of course, the podcast that he does with um, Radio Free Mormon is their number one podcast. What I love about that podcast is it is a very Informative, historically based podcast. In other words, um, you don't go to him for just opinions being thrown back and forth. You don't listen to that podcast just to hear people's opinions. They will come up with a topic, and then they historically back everything up that they're saying. So it's a very a learning uh, podcast, which I love. It kind of follows my belief. I don't. I'm the type of person that doesn't read a lot of fiction books. I don't like a lot of fiction. Um, well, maybe that's not true. I don't go for the scientifical fiction movies. I'm, I've never seen. I think I was forced to see one Lord of the Rings. Um, I believe it was three hours, and I wanted to die. Never seen anything since then. I'm not a big Harry Potter fan. Um, I don't watch Star Trek or um, any of the other. So I'm not really. That's not my thing. Um, But so I really prefer documentaries, um, biographies. I really love learning about real people and about their lives. And that falls into the same. I I follow that same principle in my historical information for my former religion. So um, I want to really I really want to turn you on to all of the podcasts that fall under Bill's umbrella, Mormon Discussions Incorporated. They are a nonprofit, which means that they rely on your donations. And the historical information, the information that is shared is absolutely, um, you can't put a price on it. It is priceless, as MasterCard would say. And um, so I would really encourage you to take a look at all of the podcasts that fall underneath that and make just a small donation. And the donations are used to um, help the other podcasters do whatever they need to do um, they a lot of the podcasters take care of their technology themselves it takes a lot of time and the research that is done to produce these podcasts it's not just a flippant podcast where people sit and chit chat about nothing there's a lot of time and effort that's put into i would say a hundred percent of the podcasts that fall under the mormon discussions umbrella so i would really encourage you to make a any kind of a donation that you can um, the other thing i want to talk about in particular is um, a couple of years ago, Bill and another one of the podcasts that he hosts, um, hosted by a- Alan Mount and Anthony Miller, started a podcast called The Gospel Topic Essays. And I believe it was done in, golly, I want to say 2016. Maybe it was just a couple years ago. It might have been. Anyway, but what they did, if any of you are unfamiliar with The Gospel Topic Essays and your LDS or belong to the the Mormon church, now being called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Um, they, in 2013 and 2014, they produced um, what they call the Gospel Topic Essays. And this was a reaction to um, a lot of members of the church in the Sweden area that were leaving the church. And they had questions about some of the um, doctrine of the church. And it was such... A calamity that they sent professionals to sweden to try to you know patch up the hole in the dam and it wasn't really effective and they were really encouraged to address these different topics and so they did they came up with the gospel topic essays and they posted it on their website which you can still find on lds.org and i believe the official name of the website is the church of jesus christ of latter saints.org i don't know it's too long anyway um but you can find it it's a little bit easier to find than it was back in 2013 and 2014 but they addressed some of the highlighted areas that have been causing people a lot of discomfort and cognitive dissonance and what Bill and Alan and Anthony and some invited guests, which are amazing, what they do is they go through each gospel topic essay, they read it, literally read it, and then they discuss different paragraphs, sentences, and things like that. It's very informative, and what I like about it is are a lot of people who don't know about it. Even people in high positions of authority in the church have never heard of the gospel topic essays. And so when you quote it or talk about it, they think that you're reading what they want to refer to as anti-Mormon literature. And when you tell them, no, no, this is from the church, and you can find it on the church's website. They're like, well, you must be taking things out of context. So what I like about this, um, these podcasts is that they go through line by line reading directly from the um, essays. So if you go to Gospel Topic Essays on YouTube, you can find each essay individually, and you can listen to each podcast individually. It's so informative, and I will admit There is confirmation bias on these podcasts because these are all three men who have left the church. Um, Some of the guests that they have had on have not necessarily left the church, but they are very informed historians who will back up what they say with um, doctrines that you can actually uh, find in the BYU library, University of Utah library, church library, things like that. So nothing is just off-the-hat opinions. So I wanted to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, The other thing that I wanted to encourage you to do is um, Jonathan Streeter has a podcast called Thinker of Thoughts, and he has a couple, I don't remember if there's part one and part two or how many parts there are, but if you go to his podcast, um, and I think he's only on YouTube, I don't think he's on a regular podcast, you can find um, a podcast. a YouTube that he did on critical thinking, and he goes through the psychology of what it means to be a critical thinker. Very, very informative. So there's just a lot of information out there, and if you're like me, occasionally I will listen to a true crime podcast or something that's just fun and light, but I'm kind of in the stage of my life where um, This is how I explained it to someone. Someone said, why are you so interested in Mormon history? And I said, well, you know, to me, it's as though I've just found out that I was adopted and that the stories that I had heard my whole life uh, aren't true and that my mom and dad aren't even my mom and dad. That's what it's like for someone who was, uh, I was not born in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormon, um, but I was 12 when my family was. Um, they had missionaries come to the door, and they listened to the uh, discussions, and they were baptized. Now this was back in the 60s, so this is what they call the um, um, Camelot era of the church. David o. McKay was the prophet, and the church was still. Each auxiliary was kind of autonomous and therefore there was a lot more freedom to each area of the country where the church was. Um, Individuals could run the church, not technically. I mean, there was was material that was basic to all believers, but if you lived in different areas of the country, you could kind of do what worked well for your location, and so I grew up in the era of what they called roadshows. For those of you that aren't members of this church, a roadshow was a Big, huge production that was put on by each congregation. And then they would have a big night where everybody did their play. And then they would vote for the winner. And it was amazing, amazing opportunity for the kids. And I also participated in what they called um, the dance festival. And this is, I lived in a small suburb just south of Chicago. And the dance festival gave me, I think, the first opportunity that I had to be on an airplane. And we flew from Chicago to Salt Lake City and stayed in the dorms of the University of Utah, performed our dance with hundreds of kids from all over the country on the football field at the University of Utah. It was an experience that I will never forget. And I also remember attending what they called Relief Society bazaars. And those were things that each Relief Society would hold. And whatever income they made from these bazaars, they kept that money locally. And um, it was amazing. These were, if you've been to some fabulous farmer's markets, this makes them look like amateurs. I mean, the quality of the hand craftsmanship that was done at these Relief Society bazaars was unbelievable. And I remember even um, I talked my mom into buying. Someone had made these handmade Easter eggs, and which were all chocolate-covered. And inside, they had some yummy nugget of some kind. And then they were individually uh, decorated with frosting on top. And I remember I bought, my mom bought one for me to give to my teachers at school. And quilts, I mean, you could find anything that you would normally find at a farmer's market. And they were exquisite that was the era that i grew up and i remember going to salt lake city um my we drove out from chicago we part we were members of the um city sitting on the sidewalk as the pioneer day parade took part and david o mckay was the prophet and he was you know in the parade leader of the parade i'm sure and to see him in real life um, the missionaries that had baptized my parents, one of them had the last name of Smith in her name. So she had uh, connections, and so she took us to the church office building. And I remember meeting Delbert Stapley and some of the old uh, people. And um, so it was just a—it a re- really was, what when they call it the Camelot era, it really was. It was also in the uh, 50s and 60s, Right. Um, because and that was a time you know after the war, baby boomers we were all baby boomers, and the roles that men and women were prescribed were uh, followed very very precisely all Mormon or not Mormon, whatever uh, women stayed at home, they had large families, men went to work. And so the doctrine of the church fell in line really easily with what was going on in the culture at the time. So it was a wonderful time to grow up Mormon, for sure. Anyway, um, I, my husband and I married. Uh, we had a large family ourselves. And we taught our children the doctrine that we were taught. And it wasn't until I was introduced to a book, which is fascinating, that was written by a member of the church, Um, quite an intellectual. He actually is, um, golly, let me think if I can remember. He is a research scientist. I think he started out actually as a doctorate in dental, uh, dentistry, but he went on and and got more education and ended up being quite the researcher. And I believe he was instrumental in finding A Cure for RSV, and I could be totally wrong on that, Greg Prince. I am so sorry. But anyway, I saw him interviewed by a podcast, um, and knowing that he was a believing member of the church, I wanted to read his biography of David O. McKay because I love David O. McKay. Now, I was a child, so I... I, you know, it's kind of like loving Santa Claus. I didn't know anything really about him, but he was our prophet. He was our leader. For any of you that are Catholic, it would be like meeting the Pope. And so I read the biography of David O. McKay, and it absolutely shook me. It shook me because um, this biography was taken from David O. McKay's secretary who kept a diary every day of President McKay's life. And so it was written, documented um, information, and there wasn't anything in there that was particularly um, I would say probably it was it, what really shook me was more the way the general authorities, the presidency of the church, and the um, so-called apostles, how they worked together, how they formed different doctrine. And how they treated problems that would come up in the church. That was kind of what made me go, wait, what? You know, where I went, they did what? And it was it was kind of the beginning of my, I need to find out more. So the next book that I read by Greg Prince was um, uh, Gays and the Mormon Church. I think it was what it was called. thats I'm sure that's not correct. But if you type that into Google, you'll find it. And basically, Dr. Prince talked about how the church was involved in Prop 8 and the money that they put into it, the amount of um, work that they required members of the church to do, and even though it was technically volunteer, it was um, really kind of commanded. And that I, I never understood that because I remember hearing that Tom Hanks, the actor Tom Hanks, hated the Mormon church. And I remember thinking, well, golly, why would you hate the Mormon church? I mean, gosh, Tom, you're one of my favorite actors. I can't believe that you hate a wonderful Christian organization. I had no idea. I had no idea about Prop 8 or any of the efforts that had been done to try to stop legalized uh, same-sex marriage. And when I found out how much money the church had put into it and the efforts that they had made, uh, including demanding that the members participate in different things— Again, I was shocked. And then that just sent me down the rabbit hole. Anyway, so most of the people that I will be interviewing and that you will hear on my podcast are, I would say I'm going to try and stick to my policy, which is I only interview women that have somehow have a tie to the uh, Mormon church. And that's because when you're raised in a fundamental religion, Uh, and then you leave that religion, it's more than just deciding, I don't want to go to that congregation anymore. I'm going to go to the one down the street because I don't like that pastor. I mean, I have an aunt that was Lutheran. Well, she was raised Methodist. We were all raised Methodist. And then she switched over to Lutheranism, and then she switched over to Catholicism, and then she went back to um, just being a Methodist. None of that affected her life at all. It was just a matter of deciding which church she was going to go to on which corner. And that's not true in, it, in the um, LDS environment. It is more than just a religion. You're not allowed to attend different congregations just because you don't like the bishop. Um, there is a complete um, community that your entire life is wrapped up in. And so if you leave the church, you leave your community. And if you live outside of the bubble in Utah, then you can escape a little easier um, because you will not find Book of Mormons and food storage in Costco like you can in Utah. One of the most startling things I found the first time I went out there and went to Costco, and I was like, why, why is all of this stuff from Deseret Book being sold at Costco? What's happening here? What happened to the church and state thing? Anyway, very interesting but, you know, what sells, sells, right? And so, plus, in, uh, like, for example, in the neighborhood that I live in now, there are no members of the church. Absolutely zero members of the church. None of my neighbors are members of the church. So the fact that we get together, we play golf, we play pickleball, we do all these things, these are with just really great, good people. They don't care what your religion is. Um, they do care a little bit about wh- where your politics are, <laughs> but religiously, um, it's a very open community. So, But if you happen to live in a highly populated Mormon community, your neighbors, um, the person checking you out at Costco, um, the guy doing your taxes, your dentist, they all might be members of the church, and they might be in your congregation. So when word gets out that you are a disgruntled leaver, then um, it affects everything, and so it, it's it 's completely different it's very much like no i I would say it's even more it 's even more of a catastrophe than even lose leaving a something as fundamental as the Jehovah Witnesses, even though they're shunned uh, by their family, which uh, a lot of LDS people are shunned by their family as well when they leave um, it doesn't affect their community relations as much. Uh, I just think because there isn't a huge, like there isn't an entire state. Is there an entire state? Let me know if there's an entire state of Jehovah Witnesses. I don't know. Anyway, so I just wanted to kind of preface and let you know that most of my podcasts, there will be a tinge of a Mormon history or belief or something in there somewhere. And uh, actually, next week, I have a wonderful guest, and she was raised ca- uh, Catholic, And she has no Mormon ties whatsoever. And the issues that we're going to be talking about where she became visible came more from her home life than from her religion. So every once in a while, I will have somebody like that. I have uh, Sandra Tanner, for those of you who know her. I have her scheduled sometime in September. And um, anyway, I have a lot of great, great women um, that are scheduled to be on the She Became Visible podcast. Anyway... How many of you, I want to tell you a little bit about, I I was a presenter at Sunstone at the end of July this last year. If any of you have an opportunity to attend Sunstone, I also want to plug them. They are a wonderful, uh, Sunstone was actually started, golly, I think it's been over 50 years ago, uh, at Berkeley by a group of intellectuals who were very kind of distraught that there were other religions that were able to really, um talk about the theology behind their christianity and they were they it was very open they could they could talk about how their particular religion started where it was going just very free to talk about their religion but in the LDS church that wasn't true and so these intellectuals really wanted to be able to open up the dialogue a little bit and they started a magazine called Dialogue, and I actually get a copy of it every quarter. It's beautiful. So a lot of uh, very thought-provoking information in Dialogue, but that's how Sunstone started. So it was a group of intellectuals that wanted the freedom to be able to discuss the religion openly. And so the theme of Sunstone is there are more than one way to Mormon. And the reason they use that theme is because there are 400-and-something uh, different sects of Mormonism that have been started by people that have broken off from the original Joseph Smith version, including the Reorganized Church, which is now called the Community of Christ, and there are just—I mean, there's there are sects breaking off currently uh, from the uh, from the what is the what is considered the Brigham version of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, originally started by Joseph Smith. And so they invite people from all different sects of Mormonism to come and speak. And so the atmosphere is great. It's very accepting, very understanding. I love it. Anyway, I was invited to be a presenter. And the topic that I presented on was the danger of cliches. So I wanted to give you a little bit about, I wanted to tell you a little bit about this presentation that I gave. And you would think that cliches were harmless and, probably most cliches that people are used to hearing are harmless i mean it doesn't really hurt anybody to say the grass is always greener right or to say uh, wow it looks like someone uh, got up on the wrong side of the bed um, or maybe you've often used the cliche well don't get your knickers in a twist so those are pretty harmless clichés and they're they're often a really good tool to use when if you think a discussion is getting a little heated or maybe somebody's getting a little upset, sometimes throwing in a cute little cliché is harmless and it can break the thickness of the air a little bit. So Webster defines a cliche as an expression that was once innovative, but has lost its novelty due to overuse. So um, when I say things like, I'm as happy as a pig in mud, or I'm as cool as a cucumber, or if I say something like, um, I hope that this uh, podcast is going to be delivered just, you know, as easy as pie and or that you will all remain as cool as a cucumber. Those are all fun cliches that are pretty harmless. Um, But I also want to tell you that um, there's a lot of really harmful cliches, and especially in the Christian world. I just read a Facebook post, and I wish I could find it, but it was a post by a woman who had just lost her mother. And I got the feeling that the mother and daughter relationship was not good, and that she was grieving the loss of her mother, but she was also grieving trying to put together a funeral and some kind of a memorial service. And what she said her greatest fear was, and this might seem silly to some of you, but I can totally understand this, her greatest fear was having to listen to the trite cliches and platitudes that are often given at funerals, or given to someone who's lost a loved one. And I think that those are um, more predominant in uh, the Christian religion or in in any faith-based community to try. And when people give these cliches, they think that they're doing, that they're comforting the person, that they're giving them some kind of solace. Uh, But in reality, most of the time, they're really, really hurtful. So... um, and one of the reasons that I found out that they are often really hurtful is because they're given by people who may have experienced some kind of sorrow in their life, but their life has gotten better. And so they feel as though their experience is the same as yours. And they think that they're giving you hope that your experience um, will get better. One of my favorite authors, I, I just, she is a goddess to me, is Barbara Brown Taylor, and in her book, Learning to Walk in the Dark, she describes the feeling of darkness, and I love her words. She says, quote, when the dark night first falls, it is natural to spend some time wa- wondering if it is a test or a punishment for something that you have done. This is often a sly way of staying in control of the situation since the possibility that you have caused it comes with the hope that you can also put an end to it either by passing the test or by enduring the punishment. The darker possibility that this night is beyond your control is often too frightening to consider at first, at least partly because it means that none of your usual strategies for lightening up is going to work. One of the um, hardest things to decide during a dark night is whether to surrender or resist. The choice often comes down to what you believe about God and how God acts, which means that every dark night of the soul involves wrestling with belief." And I think that is so true. The problem with a lot of especially God-based cliches is that they are completely thought-stopping. They are another way to end a discussion right there. Um, Most insensitive cliches are used by someone that has a severe blind spot. And blind spots are often really hard to recognize in ourselves. Oftentimes, blind spots have to be pointed out by others, and we don't like to hear criticism from others, but it's a really good thing to do if you can openly accept that you might have some blind spots. And um, I think that one of the greatest things about blind spots is that they're used a lot in TV and in movies, especially in comedic sitcoms, because just the fact that you have a grown adult uh, that you think should, should be able to see what's going on, and then they don't, they don't see what's going on, um, it really, I mean, it, you find yourself screaming at the TV, right? You find yourself going, no, don't say that, I can't believe you're saying that, because it's very easy for people from the outside to see the blind spots, but it's very difficult for, uh, for us to recognize our own blind spots, um, So, it's really, if you could possibly open up your persona, be willing to take a little bit of criticism when someone says, you know, I think you're not really seeing the whole picture, that's probably a really good idea. Um, So, I want to also tell you there was a wonderful book that I found. Let me skip past all of this stuff when I talk about uh, I gave some examples of my own blind spots at my presentation, and um, it's kind of it's kind of sad when you recognize your own blind spots, and you're kind of like, wow, I thought I was a pretty intelligent person, but wow, that was really stupid. That was a stupid thing to think. That was a stupid thing to say, um, but anyway, so let's get past that, but um, I don't know if any of you know or remember the book by Norman Vincent Peale, which was called The Power of Positive Thinking. It's still popular. It's been in publication since 1952. And he really puts forth the idea that you can be happy if you choose to be. And this idea has been integrated into our uh, military, into our classrooms. And especially into religious dogma, from the it even goes to the extent that if you're happy, you are following God's principles, and if you're not happy, you are under the influence of Satan. That's how far this idea has gotten into religious dogma. Um, so, uh, leading people uh, have when when you talk about you know only being happy. It really sets up a recipe for disaster. And Brene Brown teaches us that leaders must stay curious about their blind spots and how to pull those issues into view, to commit to helping the people they serve in supportive and safe ways. And she's not only including businesses, leadership Uh, people in any kind of a system, but she's also talking about religious leaders, uh, school teachers, anybody in any kind of leadership authority. She goes on to teach that when we deny our stories of struggle, when we pretend everything is okay, when we're really in a deep struggle, the hard stories own us. They own us, and they drive our behavior, emotions, thinking, and leading and so she's really talking about doing the deep dive looking into our own uh darkness being able to accept it because if you only put on a positive happy persona then it really sets other people up for disaster uh there's a there's a system out there especially in a lot of christian uh, religions which is the prosperity gospel where if you're prosperous, if you have a big house, if you're driving a Lamborghini, if you have a beautiful, healthy family, uh, everything's really going your way, you must be following all of God's principles, right? Um, I see that a lot in the Mormon culture um, because the Mormon church requires people to pay 10% of their income, and in exchange for that, they are promised blessings from God. And so people will interpret success in worldly ways, as obedience to God's principles. And it's personified in their clothing and the home that they live in and how many toys they have in their garage. And it's kind of assumed that these people must really be following God's commandments and they must really be righteous people or they wouldn't be that um, blessed. So there's a lot of really damning cliches in the Mormon church. Uh, one of them is the wicked take the truth to be hard. Uh, that kind of comes from the idea that if you don't like what I'm saying, hmm, it might be hard for you because you're choosing to live a worldly life or you're, you're choosing to follow Satan. And it's really hard to really follow the gospel. And if you can't do it, then you're just weak. So that's what that says. Um, as much as I love... Dieter Uchtdorf, Um he really, really, he gave the most beautiful talk, actually timed right after the gospel topics essays came out. He gave a talk in general conference about doubting your doubts and not assuming that people are leaving the religion because they want to sin, and I think that talk was instrumental in him being fired from the first presidency and put back into the apostleship, but that's just my own opinion. Anyway, he says, doubt your doubts. And I I like to tell the story that, um, that I believe that doubting your doubts is probably one of the most important things that you should do. If you are standing in front of a dark alleyway, and there's something at the end of that alleyway that you would really like to go to, let's say it's a cute little boutique, and you're you're in the middle of Seattle, and of course I'm saying this because this is exactly what happened to me at one point. But there, I, I looked down that dark alley, and I thought, mm, should I go down that alley? Um, and I could probably argue on both sides of why I should or why I shouldn't, but I listened to my gut, and of course I didn't go down the alley, and so I have no way of proving whether that was a good choice or not but i had heard it was okay it's no big deal it's a safe place to be it's the cutest little story you should go down there but i doubted those ideas that have been given to me and i chose not to do it so there have been multiple instances as a mother when i have doubted what was told to me by authorities whether it was a school authority or a medical authority and chose to listen to my gut and go a different direction. And it has actually saved my children's lives. So I do not ever trust or believe in the cliche, doubt your doubts. I think when you have a doubt, that should be a huge like warning signal going off in your brain. You should be going, why am I thinking that? Why would that thought come into my mind? I need to think about that a little bit. Um, Hold to the rod. That's another cliche that's often told in the church. Or this is my favorite. You can leave the church, but you can't leave it alone. And I'm listening to a podcast right now that's talking about some of the people that have been really instrumental in changes that have been made in the United States. You know, Martin Luther King and John Lewis and other people. I mean, even the suffragette movement. These are all people that um, they left their comfort. And they chose to be vocal about it. So, and I also think it's very kind of hypocritical for authorities in the church to say that because um, they have a huge program, especially during the holidays. And during COVID, when the missionaries weren't allowed to go out and proselyte in person, they had a huge social media program that was set up. So it's almost like you can have the church, but you can't stop talking about it. It's kind of hypocritical to say you can leave the church, but you can't stop talking about it, especially when you feel the need to share the information that you have found. And as I mentioned in the beginning, um, the idea that what you've been taught your whole life is a lie, it is absolutely shocking, and it shakes people's worlds, and so the fact that it came as a, just a shock is something that you want to share, it's like, did you know this, am I the only person in the world that didn't know this, and, um, so I think that's why there is a tendency for people after they leave the church to not leave it alone, I just started reading a really interesting book called Moroni and the Swastika. We'll talk about that on another podcast. But anyway, so um, I wanted to get to, um, how much time do I have? Does anybody know? As much as you want. Oh, whoa, that's a dangerous thing to say. Okay. Um, There's a wonderful book out there called When Bad Things Happen to Good People, and it was written by a Jewish rabbi. And he lost a child, and it was absolutely devastating for him. The child, oh golly, what was the, what was the? I can't remember the um, genetic disability that the child was born with. But it's what's the uh, what's the disability? You guys will all know where they age really quickly. You have these little children that look like old old men because they just age. And so, at the age of thirteen or fourteen, he actually passed away. And it was very, very hard on his family. So he he also, because he served as a rabbi, he worked with a lot of people that were going through a lot of sorrowful um, situations. So he says in his book, Bad Things Happen to Good People, he says um, he believes that God is not responsible for things that happen in this world. He says, quote, Some people will find the hand of God behind everything that happens. For example, I visited a woman in the hospital whose car was run into by a drunken driver running a red light. Her vehicle was demolished, but miraculously, she escaped with only two cracked ribs and a few superficial cuts from flying glass. She looks up at me from her hospital bed and says, now I know there is a God. If I could come out of that alive and in one piece, it must be because he is looking out for me up there. I smile and keep quiet, running the risk of letting her think that I agree with her. Then her, his mind goes back to a funeral that he conducted two weeks earlier, and he says the funeral was for a young husband and father who died in a similar drunk driver collision. And I remember another case, a child killed by a hit-and-run driver while roller skating. And all the newspaper accounts of lives cut short in automobile accidents. The woman before me may believe that she is alive because God wanted her to survive, and I am not inclined to talk her out of it. But what would she or I say to those other families? That they were less worthy than she, less valuable in God's sight, that God wanted them to die at that particular time and manner and did not choose to spare them? He goes on to say, when laws of physics and metal fatigue cause a wing to fall off an airplane or when human carelessness causes engine failure so that a plane crashes, killing 200 people, was it God's will that those 200 should chance to be on a doomed plane that day? And if the 201st passenger had a flat tire on the way to the airport and missed the flight, grumbling and cursing his luck as he saw the plane take off without him, Was it God's will that he should live while the others died? If it were, I would have to wonder about what kind of message God was sending us with his apparently arbitrary acts of condemning and saving. And this has been something that has been my belief. You'll hear this a lot in the LDS church. Um, Every month in the LDS church, they have what they call a fast and testimony, which is basically a really scary open mic. Uh, performance. And it is literally open to the congregation for people to take the microphone and express what is supposed to be a testimony of Jesus Christ or a testimony of their belief in the church, but often turns into a travelogue or a declaration of how they were saved or blessed by God. And so they'll say, you know, my son was really sick Uh, Or maybe, you know, just whatever examples, and they received a priesthood blessing, and miraculously they were healed. And then you'll hear someone else say, my daughter was diagnosed with cancer, Um, she received a priesthood blessing, Uh, my husband made a promise that that if God would heal her, then he would devote, you know, all of his extra time to working for not only the church, but also for the hospital that had served her and miraculously uh golly it's been over 40 something years she's actually still struggling with um cancer issues um, but she's still around and she's watched all four of her children grow up and become uh adults and it's it's fabulous um but when i when i remember hearing them talk about how they were blessed i couldn't help but think about the family that had a six-month-old child that died of leukemia or um, my, you know, some of my people that I'm close to that have had um, spouses die in car accidents. Young, intelligent, bright people die in car accidents. So I find that statement a little disconcerting. Um, I also recently returned from a retreat that I signed up for um, in Telluride, Colorado. And I signed up for this retreat because I wanted to go to Telluride. And I also love retreats that are dedicated to only women. Um, So I also had just finished reading the book, um, which would be nice if I could think of the name, Heartbreak. Uh, There's more to it than that. Florence Williams, I am so sorry that I am destroying the name of your book. But it was a beautiful story of how She literally was suffering from physical reactions to her heartbreak when her husband of almost 30 years came home and said, I don't want to do this anymore, and I'm out of here, and left her and the two children. And she just talks about what she went through to heal her body and her heart and her mind and everything because, you know, she has lots of interviews and statistics and data on the Physical Effects of Heartbreak, and it's a beautiful book. And she was actually running the retreat, so that's why I wanted to go to it. Um, I, I didn't really realize the trauma that was going to be attending the retreat. Most of the women that were there were not just fans of Florence and her book, but they had also suffered severe trauma in their life, and so they had come to this retreat to heal. I went to the retreat to hike and tell you right. <laughs> And I was, talk about naive. I mean, I think when you are um, in kind of a sheltered community, which I definitely was living in the uh, Mormon community, uh, when you find and hear stories outside of the perfection that you are, you know, com- continually spoon-fed, and you hear about the real trauma that's going on out, out there in the world, you're just like, wait, what? I What? And every single one of these women had stories of husbands that deserted them after 30 years of marriage in spite of tumors, hysterectomies, um, childhood issues, um, major things that had happened in their life. At some point, they were like, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. I found a girlfriend. I'm out of here. Um, some of my favorite stories, there were more than two, uh, and I just, I'm putting this out as a a public service. Okay. For you men out there, I don't know if there are any men listening to this because it is a very female oriented podcast, but if there are, I would highly recommend you not text your mistress or anybody that you're cheating on your wife with. Just don't, just go, go somewhere, get a burner phone. I don't know what to tell you, but there were so many stories (laughs) of men who thought they were texting their mistress, but they actually sent it, sent it to their wives. There was one story where they were on a group chat, and so they the the husband sent a message to not only his wife, but the other four couples that were on the group, group chat, uh, stating what a loser his wife was and how he couldn't wait to see his mistress this weekend. So that was bad, and it was not only bad for his wife, but... Yeah, you know, the other four couples kind of knew what was going on, so I would just say probably don't text. Not a not a good thing to do. But anyway, broke my heart. And these were women that were very successful. These were women who had fabulous leadership positions in companies, CEOs, uh, healthcare workers, um, just amazing women that had been very successful in their personal lives and in their careers. But um the but whose husbands had decided and there was there was one sweet woman, I love her, mostly because I think we were the two oldest people that were there at the retreat. But she had been married to the love of her life, who died after 17 years of marriage of cancer. And it wasn't right away, but she remarried, and I think she'd been married for over 25 years. And so her husband, who was in his seventies, was like, Yeah, I'm out of here, found somebody new. Very, very sad. But anyway. Um, I want to go on and quote Rabbi Kushner from his book. Uh, He says, I don't know why one person gets sick and another does not, but I can only assume that some natural laws which we don't understand are at work. I cannot believe that God sends illness to a specific person for a specific reason. I don't believe in a God who has a weekly quota of malignant tumors to distribute and consults his computer to find out who deserves one most or could handle it best. What did I do to deserve this is an understandable outcry from a sick and suffering person. But it is the wrong question. Being sick or healthy is not a matter of what God decides we deserve. The better question is, if this has happened to me, what do I do now? And who is there to help me do it? And so he goes on to really, really talk about how... Uh, Because he is a rabbi and he has a a strong belief in God, he believes that um, there is natural laws that were set up by a God who created the earth and who also created gravity and tectonic plates and wind and other things that cause natural disasters and that it isn't God that is um, making these natural disasters hurt specific people but he believes that God uses people to comfort and help those that are going through struggles. And I have, I kind of, I'm kind of on that side. Anyway, um, so let me just go right away to some of the things that Christians will often say. And um, let me see, because there's another book that I wanted to quote, too, from someone who had also gone through a, an experience. Um, okay, she says... Um, Okay, sometimes people, when you're going through a traumatic experience, sometimes people will say, well, at least, and, and uh, this, is, this is a quote from uh, Kelly, oh golly, Kelly, I'm sorry. She has a wonderful book um, that she talks, it's also called um, something about why bad things happen to good people. And... La 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 la. Let me find her name because I cannot quote her without giving her actual name because that would be bad. But oh, Kelly. Oh, Kate. Kate. Kate Bowler. In her book, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies, I've loved. Uh, that's a great book too. And she talks a lot about the prosperity gospel. She talks about televangelists that she got involved in. Anyway, so she says at the end of her book, these are four things you should never say to someone that's suffering. Well, at least, and she says, at least what? Uh, Don't minimize the trauma of any kind by listing all the things that people should be grateful for. Like, for example, if someone loses a child, you don't say, well, at least you have three others. Or at least you had a child. Or don't ever even use the word at least. She says that's number one, no, no. Um, Number two, she says, don't ever say, in my long life, I've learned... Because she says, okay, wait, what do you want, a medal? I mean, good for you. It's, But it's not about you. It's not about you in your life. It's about what's happening. So number three, she says, it's going to get better, I promise. Don't ever say that. She goes, well, fairy godmother, where's your wand? And I have personal experience with that um it took me a while to get pregnant when my husband and I got married took me a little over a year we couldn't figure out why or what was happening but being a member of the Mormon church you know having a family is really really encouraged and people when you get married they're kind of like uh where's the babies what's happening and so sometimes going to church uh, especially when they blessed babies, or they talked about multiplying and replenishing the earth, those were really hard meetings for me to go to because I wanted a baby really badly, and um, so. But people would come up to me and they'd say, "It's all right. You'll have a baby someday. It's okay." And I'm like, "Why do you? Why do you even say that? You know, you know nothing about my body. Nothing, you know." So I, I have personal experience with that. Um, and then the worst thing to say to someone who has just lost somebody is that God needed an angel that's the worst it makes God look needy and sadistic Rabbi Kushner mentions a young boy who suffered this comment it made him feel guilty that maybe he hadn't needed his mother as much as he should have and I love that um analogy is telling someone that god needed them more than you did especially to someone let's say a young mom who's just lost her husband she's got three children um she she married young she didn't have an opportunity to learn a a skill or a profession she has no idea how she's going to keep the roof over her head or support her children to tell them that god needed him more than she did is very hurtful so that's just a few examples of some of the cliches and that I talked about in my presentation at Sunstone, and something that I really wanted to address because um, I thought this was really really interesting. There's a one. There's a really fun book out there called. Um, oh golly, let's see. Oh, jo- Jonah Goldberg, he wrote a book called "The Tyranny of Cliches," and I love finding things out. I love aha moments. And he said. Um, he says, uh, here's an example of a cliche. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And that saying has been attributed to Benjamin Franklin. But actually, you can find that quote 500 years uh, later from an English jurist named Henry de Brockton. And he said something very similar to that. There's a lot of statements. For example, there's a quote out there that's often referenced to one of the prophets. Well, David O. McKay, the prophet that I talked about earlier, where um, uh, blah, 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 no, other, no other success can compensate for failure in the home, and that's attributed to David O. McKay. Actually, he isn't the first one that said that, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody will know. Anyway, um, so he says, what people tend to forget or more likely ever knew to begin with is that Benjamin Franklin employed this slogan in the context of his role as the founder of the first fire insurance company in America. It doesn't mean he was wrong, but it's at least worth remembering that he was making pounds of profit from ounces of other people's prevention. And I thought that was really good. What's a worse cliche than calling people a lazy learner or calling people a lazy thinker because they don't agree with everything that you say? Um, the other thing that he says in his book, The Tyranny of Cliches, is hindsight is twenty twenty. He says, no, it's not. Indeed, it's hard to think of a more untrue phrase casually flung about in intelligent conversations. If hindsight is twenty twenty, 20 Jonah says, why do historians disagree about, well, just about everything after the date and place of an event? It's really a good book. I really, really enjoyed it. So, um, and I'm going to close this podcast with my favorite theologian and philosopher. Um, his name is Paul McCartney. And he was one of the Beatles. And he was talking about how when things would go wrong, you know, when they were a group, uh, he said, uh, when you're facing crazy things or things that go wrong in life, they would just say, Well, something will happen. And that would actually console them quite a bit. And so he says, I've told a lot of people since then, when you're in your darkest moments, just remember that incredibly intelligent quote, Something will happen. And I think that's so true. So anyway, thanks for listening to me today. Uh, Talk about cliches, talk about the She Became Visible podcasts and what you can look forward to. If you have any ideas, and can I also put out a little plug too? I'm actually looking for a co-host. So if there's another woman out there who has always wanted to have a podcast, um, if you are especially someone that has disconnected from the Mormon church, I would love to have you contact me. You can contact me through my uh, direct messages on my um, She Became Visible Facebook page. Also, you can contact me on the... um, a podcast page. You can put it in the comments there. Um my other um Instagram is go gray dame and you can follow me there and also DM me there if you are interested in being a co-host. I don't think there's anything better than listening to two really um people who really get along that have the same confirmation bias. <laughs> i'll be i'll admit it right there uh but i think it's really fun to have two people's perspective on any kind of podcast i mean that's why people interview other people right not very often do people listen when you know when that person's just sitting there and going off on a tangent so i'm looking for a co-host if you're interested please message me contact um bill real if you can't get a hold of me he will send your information my way And um, I can't think of anything else that I wanted to let you know. So uh, tune in next week where I will be um, uh, talking with a really fabulous woman who has done amazing things with her life in spite of all of the barriers that have been put in front of her. So it's going to be really interesting. So thank you so much. Have a good week, and we will talk again on She Became Visible. Thanks.